The second reading is from 1 John, and we're beginning at verse 18 this morning. It can be found on the third page of the service sheet or on page 1226 of the Pew Bibles. Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they didn't really belong to us, for if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promises us, eternal life. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. Thank you very much, uh, Caroline, for reading that to us. Let's pray uh, with those words uh, before us. Father in heaven, we pray uh, for grace to remain in Christ as we turn to the teaching of your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I feel like I'm in darkness. Um, Seeing Charles and Caroline read reminds me to say to people that are living in the village, check the notice board on the way out for a couple of things that are happening today. There's a deep clean of the village that you can be part of. There is a meet the parish councillor meeting early evening, five o'clock or thereabouts, that you can be part, come to as well. But that, I don't apologise for mentioning that because I know that it um, goes out to various people. Uh, the more we mention it, the signs are in the, in the uh, porch. I have another notice. I'm going to sneak in by way of application later on. Um, thank you for reading anyway, uh, Caroline. Verse 26 of that reading is another point in the letter of 1 John where we get a little hint into why the Apostle John was writing the letter. Um, this is just near the end of the reading we had there, over the page, if you're on the service sheet, page um, 1226, is it? In the Bibles, if you want to check it there. 
Verse 26 says this, I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. Just as a little window on what is motivating this letter. And immediately you read those sorts of words, it should be apparent that the concerns John has in his letter are slightly different from the way we often talk today. He, John, the apostle, writes with a conviction that there is such a thing as truth and there is such a thing as error. And those who promote error aren't just offering an alternative point of view their views will actually lead people astray. They'll have serious consequences. As I say, that is somewhat different from our culture's attitude and the prevailing mood today. We don't easily see things in black and white. This is true, that's false. We're much more comfortable with viewing people's beliefs as a sort of shade of grey, or matters of opinion and personal choice. Your choice might well be true for you, even if it's not for me. Um, the extreme version of that sort of culture and prevailing wind is to say it doesn't matter what you believe so long as you're sincere. Funny thing is, we don't talk that way about lots of other areas of life if you ponder it. The parent doesn't say to a toddler on a country walk, sure, go ahead and meet those lovely red berries. I'm not too sure, but if you feel good about them, go on, go ahead and eat them. Or the drug-induced high may tell a student that thinks she can fly that it's safe to climb up a parapet on King's College without ropes. And she might be absolutely sincere in her beliefs, thanks to the drugs. But the hard fact of gravity may tell her otherwise. In fact, any friend in their right mind will say, don't do it, don't do it. So we operate every day as if reality matters, not just sincerity. You can be sincere, but be sincerely mistaken. That applies when it comes to our beliefs, our spiritual convictions, very seriously as well. Truth and error are black and white categories, and they really matter. Now, that is what drove John to write. If you look at verse 26 again, I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. I think in times past in this series, we've mentioned the false teaching that had sprung up at the end of the first century. Uh, Some people will use as a convenient label that uh, title Gnosticism as a sort of catch-all for the sort of teaching that was in circulation. So in the next generation of church life, John is writing this letter as he, the apostle who'd been in touch with the original early Christians and with Jesus Christ himself, John is writing to deal with that concern. And he, it's clear from uh, the uh, the sort of writing about him by people in, in the next generation, he had a reputation of being very exercised about that, that issue. There's a story about one of the leading false teachers called Serinthus. Um, apparently one time, I read, John went to the public baths for a dip to freshen up, and Serinthus was there, and John ran out of the building and told everybody else to escape. Let us fly, he said, lest even the bathhouse fall down, because Serinthus, the enemy of the truth, is inside. So apparently, you get the feeling, he feared that the building was sure to collapse on the heretic and on anyone who got too close to him. 
that sort of popular mythology about John that was written after his time, and I don't know if it's true, but it gives you the flavor of how truth and error mattered to John, and we certainly see that here in this letter. He certainly thinks that they matter to the church as a whole. So, in the interest of black and white clarity, I've got two headings for us this morning. Two headings describing two groups of people that we had in that reading. I'm going to take a bit of a risk. I'm going to risk making you all think about 21st century European politics. I'm going to give the two groups names which I hope you'll find easy to remember, the Leavers and the Remainers. Don't panic. I'm talking about one group leaving the gospel behind and denying Christ, and the other group remaining in Christ and sticking with the message they've been taught. And let me say, whichever side you came down on with Brexit, the remainers are the ones that get the thumbs up from John. Now, I wish I could say that our Bible passage split neatly in two, with one half describing one of those two groups and then the second group in the next bit. But the verses are a little more complicated than that. There's a bit of a crisscross as you go through the reading that Caroline read to us. That the focus moves back and forth between those who depart from the gospel and those who stick with Jesus. But let's focus first on the leavers, starting in verse 18. Dear children, John writes, this is the last hour. And as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they didn't really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. The verses you looked at last week talked about the world passing away. And that thought reinforces the view of time which says, we are in the last hour. That's not to say 59 minutes and counting till the end. It's talking the way the Bible so often does. We're in the last days or the last hour from when Jesus came the first time all the way until when he returns a second time. And that period of time is the last day or the last hour in that as soon as Jesus came the first time, that great final act of God's rescue plan is already underway. One of the marks of the last hour is, has been throughout the church age, the presence of error in the church. People who leave the true message of Christ behind and in time even leave the church itself. Now he has different ways of describing this group. One that grabs our attention, probably did as it was read, is that label Antichrist, which probably has probably a deliberate double meaning. It could mean opposed to Christ, attacking Christ, anti-Jesus. Or it could mean instead of Jesus, putting something instead of him, replacing him. It probably means both those two, attacking him and replacing him. Notice that even though he speaks about one specific figure, the Antichrist, singular, what he's talking about is not just a person but a principle. Already, he says, even now many Antichrists, plural, have come. However, the surprise is, 
to us as we read this, that the anti-Jesus group begin, apparently, within the church. They weren't outside the church. They weren't, in our language today, militant, atheist, secularist. No, he says, they went out from us. One of the articles of the Church of England is Article 26. It has a throwaway line which says this, in the visible church of Christ, the evil be ever in the visible church, the evil be ever mingled with the good. I'm having trouble with my uh, 17th century English. I have written a little paper that unpacks that, um, which I'd be very happy for people to take copies of on the table on the way out if you want a little extra reading on the matter. That article is making the distinction between the visible church of Christ and the church invisible, the heavenly church, which you can't see with the naked eye, the church throughout time across the world uh, in Christ. We can't see that yet, but that church is pure. It's 100% made up of converted people who, who follow Christ, built around Christ. The visible church is different. We can see that in space and time. And All Saints Little Shelford at 11 a.m. on February the 25th, that is the visible church, or at least part of it. That has, the article would say, converted and unconverted people on most Sundays alongside each other in the building. False teachers and true teachers in the visible church. The evil ever mingled with the good. That is the visible church of Christ, a mixed bag. I suppose it's talking about what we see, not just at All Saints, but we're a little outcrop of the visible church here, as it were. So what had happened in John's day is that the levers were in amongst the true church of Christ, but they didn't really belong, and in the end, that showed in the way they left Jesus behind, and they left the church, drawing people off with them. Just look at verse 19 again. It's really important today, it seems to me. They went out from us but they didn't really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. I wonder, Justin, if you've got a video at this stage. This is a bit of light relief, not strictly related to the passage. The brief history of rugby. Rugby originated out of an early form of football. Not like football as we know it today, but a much cruder form of the game, full of rough and tumble, with no limits to the number of players on each side, and not too much in the way of rules. Players were allowed to catch and kick the ball with their hands, but they weren't allowed to run with it, and that was pretty much it. Legend has it that in 1823, a young lad by the name of William Wearpass didn't care too much for this rule either. And so, during a game of football at the rugby school in the town of Rugby, Warwickshire, England, caught the ball and ran with it towards the opponent's goal. Okay, that's quite enough of that. Um, what you have there is common ground occupied by two games for a time but then a new game something entirely new started and I think I'm indebted to Robin Church for this illustration 
I'm pretty sure he told me about this idea of uh, within the church, you'll have people that are putting us under pressure to say, let's try other things, let's try new things, who don't quite have the courage to start with to say, there's a new game in play here. We had all sorts of Venn diagrams that I won't put up at the first service to try and make the point here. According to John, outward association with a visible church doesn't necessarily mean I belong to the true church of Christ. Calling myself a Christian, rubbing shoulders with real Christians, doesn't mean I necessarily am a Christian. I can be within a church, sort of, without belonging to the church. Part of the confusion today, it seems to me, just to try and unpack a bit more from this passage, is that lots of people have redefined Christians as anyone who attends a church, forgetting that there's always a mixture within churches today, people who don't really belong, who will leave in the end because, in fact, they were never genuine converted Christians. Not everyone who calls themselves Christians or who others have wanted to call Christians necessarily are Christians. And the pressure to invent a new game and disappear off for that game is uh, alive and well, it seems to me. If you want to put a little more detail on the portrait here, um, it is hard, isn't it, in 1 John? I think you probably felt that as we had that passage read just. I'm certainly going to be a bit reticent. Some people are very confident that they know exactly what the teaching that John was trying to counter was, and they try and piece it together um, exactly what form the new teaching was taking in his day. I'm not sure that we can do that or, or even should do that fully. You get some hints, and as we read further in the book, there'll be more detail as we read on. Verse 22 talks about denying that Jesus is the Christ. There's a mention of denying the Father and denying the Son. Come back to that title, Antichrist, we began thinking about Either the people then explicitly were attacking the person of Jesus Christ. They might have talked about Jesus for sure, but he wasn't the real Jesus, God's anointed rescuer, fully God and fully human, the God-man from Nazareth. So they attacked Jesus. Or, slightly subtly, they were replacing Jesus, not talking about him explicitly, but just sidelining him or denying him. And if you deny the son, says John, you deny the father at the same time. So you can sing the songs and rub shoulders with people, the people of God. You can use the word G-O-D in your conversation, but those three letters mean nothing if we're not specifically talking about the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think with a bit of... Uh, Further pondering, you'd have to say that the Antichrist spirit is alive and well in churches today. Of course, it's the last hour. That's what we'd expect, isn't it? People who may use the word Jesus, but fall short of the full portrait of Jesus we find in the Bible, which even just a couple of verses here covers. Here he is, Jesus, the human name for Jesus, flesh and blood, fully human, so he can save humans. He's 
the Christ, God's promised rescuer and king, and he is the son of the father. In other words, he is fully God. He's co-equal and co-eternal with the father. He must, therefore, be central. No Christianity without Christ. I think what's happened is that people will often embrace a sort of churchianity, putting church and religion in the place of Christ. And there might be an overlap between churchianity and Christianity, at least to begin with, which I suppose can be really confusing, pretty confusing today. But the levers in this passage here show that they they show their true colours in the end, don't they? They've, they've got a new game they want to play, as it were. They leave the church, and they show that they were never really part of the church. Enough on the levers. What is our response to be? Let's look more briefly at the remainers. And they are mentioned first in verse 20. Let me read verse 20 to you. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I don't write to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. That's slightly puzzling language for us, that talk of anointing. We don't normally have that in common parlance and talk that way. I have a hunch that John is talking that way because the false teachers were talking that way, using this sort of language. We have the true anointing, they might have said. Come and join us if you want a fuller knowledge of God. And John has to say, no, you already know the anointed one. That's what the word Christ means, the anointed one. Jesus has been anointed with the Spirit. And if you come to him, he can give you the Spirit, that anointing. Know him, and you know the truth. You don't need some extra anointing. Stick with what you already have. Be a remainer. And he says the same in verse 24. As for you, see that what you've heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the, and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. What could be better than that wonderful promise? Wonderful to be offered and secured, have secured for us eternal life. But it can be pretty unsettling, can't it, to have people promising you bigger, better blessings. So he warns again about the leavers and the deceivers before re-emphasizing to the people he's writing to about their need to remain. Verse 26, I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you and you don't need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. Again, that's slightly odd language to our ears, isn't it? Don't give up on it. Probably he writes this way because he's echoing what the new teachers were saying. We have a superior teaching to offer you, they might have claimed. No, no need for that, says John. You don't need anyone to teach you. Now, he wasn't saying that Christians who have the Spirit don't need any teaching at all. He was teaching them, wasn't he, as he wrote the letter. But we don't need new teaching. New teaching is likely to be counterfeit, 
he says here. So stick with what the message has already taught you. Just as it has already taught you, remain in him. Be a remainer, as in remain in Jesus Christ, fully human, fully divine, God's anointed, appointed saviour. Remain with him. What a word to us in our obsession with novelty, always wanting the latest thing. We want the iPhone 15 quick. We want season four, is it now, of Happy Valley. Well, don't carry that itch for a new message into the Christian faith. Christianity is Christ. Jesus Christ is the ABC of the Christian faith. He's what you need to start out with the the Christian faith. And we never move beyond him to some superior message. He is the XYZ of Christianity as well. Just to bring the force of this closer to home for us, um, as I draw to a close, nearly. Let me pass on what Don Carson, the Canadian preacher, once put powerfully. He was, he was relaying about a Mennonite friend um, and what they had said about their denomination and how over time it had drifted from the Christian faith. The process he analyzed, this friend of Don Carson's, took about three generations Within the Mennonite denomination and their Christian subculture, there was, he described, uh, generation one, the first generation, who often believed the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection. But as a Christian subculture, they held as well that there were certain social, economic, and political implications. Um, I've not met a Mennonite before, I don't think, but I'm guessing that included things like a sort of old-fashioned pre-industrial lifestyle as part of uh, their culture. So they had the gospel. They were clear about that. There were Mennonite traditions that were important to them. The next generation of Mennonites took the message of Christ crucified for granted. Just didn't get talked about much. They didn't deny the gospel. They just assumed it. So it wasn't front and center. Instead, increasingly, the big deal was the various Mennonite social implications, their subculture. The third generation went further still. They were, in the language of this passage, the leavers. Instead of assuming the gospel, but not talking about it, they actually denied the gospel. And the implications became what really mattered to them. Now, that's a a little bit of a a window on them. It's not just an issue for Mennonites, believe me. Large swathes of evangelicals today are lodged in that second-generation position. We've got to the point where we easily assume the gospel and begin focusing on peripheral, churchy lifestyle interests. Plenty in the mainline denomination at the time are denying the gospel, They're more in the position of the third generation in that uh, analogy with the Mennonites, denying that Jesus uh, is needed as a savior from sin, denying the centrality of scripture, and promoting instead an empty husk of vaguely Christian values, a very selective set of behaviors which perhaps arose from the Christian faith in the past, but nobody quite knows how or why. That's the situation 
today, as far as I can see, if you sort of think about the visible church and cast an eye around the world. But let's get personal, because it's not just a matter for people out there. God wasn't daydreaming when he put one John in our Bibles. It's for us. And I believe God wasn't daydreaming when it ended up being in the sermon series for us to ponder at this point in our church's life as well. If it's in our Bibles, it's because God wants us to see that there is a real danger that we will not remain in the message as we have been taught. There's a real danger, however convinced we once were, that we will stop believing the apostolic gospel. I wonder if you are prepared to see that's a danger for you. It's a danger for for me as the minister in this church or one of them. Will you therefore this Lent commit yourself afresh to remaining in the Christian faith as it was taught? Block your leave, block your ears to the levers who encourage us to pick up the ball and run with it, to start a totally new game, as it were, to move on from Christ. For some of us, maybe the challenge is to make a start with Jesus. We can't remain with Jesus Christ because we haven't yet begun with him. You've never yet asked God's anointed king to anoint you with the Holy Spirit, to forgive your sins and to transform your life. You need to ask him for that wonderful promise of eternal life in verse 25. Without which, let it be said, people are still under God's judgment. That's the logic of it, isn't it? I want to be more committed myself to inviting people to come to him and then never, ever, ever leave him. Let's pray together. Conscious, Lord, of the spiritual battle, of the uh, danger that we're in, of the cultural blinkers we all wear that make it hard to hear talk of truth and error, of wrong conclusions we might easily come to in a, a mixed church setting this side of glory. And we pray for your mercy on us, therefore. Help us, uh, protect us from the enemy, and lead us more and more fully to stick with Christ. We pray that he would have the rightful place in our hearts and minds individually and as a church for the honor and glory of his name, for the good of those who don't yet know him, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.